Welcome to episode four of season 16 of the Growing Empire Show. Today I'm here with my special guest and colleague, Justino Arroyo, a local broker from the Lehigh Valley area. And I think you're going to get a kick out of his story. He went from being a police officer to a full time investor. And his journey, I think, is definitely one for the record books. So stay tuned. Welcome to Growing Empires, hosted by real estate entrepreneur and trusted investment advisor, Jennifer DeJesus. Growing Empires provides insight to building wealth through passive income-producing real estate investments for those who want to build and manage a more profitable real estate portfolio. Welcome, Justino, to the Growing Empires show. I'm so glad that you're here. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm proud to be here. Let's kick off this episode with you sharing a little bit about your background and the work that you're doing now. All right, so my background's pretty dynamic. Um, I spent about almost 10 years as a police officer locally in the Lehigh Valley, um, five years in, in Fountain Hill and almost five years in South Whitehall Township, and then kind of traversed roughly around 2015 into real estate. Um, I did both careers for about three, almost four years, which is pretty tough. Yeah, for sure. And transition into real estate, it was a, uh, it happened by accident, I'll be honest with you. Um, I started looking into real estate, had a few dollars saved up from working overtime as a police officer. Um, being active on the SWAT team, we had a lot of opportunity for call outs and, you know, DUI checkpoints, things of that sort. During which um, I was with a buddy of mine one day and I was like, hey, I have some money saved up. I don't know what to do with it. And he was a local investor and he was like, buy a rental property. I'm like, I don't know. I can't buy, how do I buy a rental property? I just bought my first house. He's like, well, look for a property that's distressed and needs work and, you know, fix it up and make it work. I'm like, okay. So I, I came home that night, presented to my wife, and I was like, hey, uh, I'm going to buy a rental property. Now, mind you, I n- didn't know how to cut grass. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm an inner city boy. I literally, Nina's father to this day will make fun of me because I didn't know how to cut grass. And then we went back and forth and, you know, she's like, give it a shot. See if you find something, we'll make it work. Fast forward uh, like six days, uh, I was on Craigslist. I saw a wholesaler posted about a property just outside of my jurisdiction. Um, when my shift was over at work, I drove over, checked the property out. We kind of went back and forth and it landed on a price that made sense. And then that kind of evolved the whole trying to find out what to do with the property. And I kind of just went, you know, I didn't tippy toe. I kind of just jumped full fledged in and next, you know, four weeks later, I owned the property. Wow. And that kind of started the dynamic to where we're at now. Wow, that's awesome. Well, today we're going to talk about your best advice as a local real estate broker and investor. And I've asked Justino to join me to share his wealth of knowledge that he's gained throughout the years on these subjects. So we're going to jump right into, you know, some questions here. So you shared a little bit about your journey into real estate, but what led you to actually then start your brokerage? So it sounds like you got your hands wet with investing first and then the brokerage kind of came later. Is that correct? 100%. So early on, as I was trying, you know, I had a tough schedule. You know, I was, I was on the traditional swing shift where I, I was working six days, one shift, two days off, six days, next shift, two days off, six days, the next shift. And that was days, nights, middle. So we rotated every single week. So trying to find an agent that would fit into my schedule was tough. So I ended up getting my uh, real estate license to be able to just show properties and then that kind of evolved into people understanding what we're doing now, saw us buying investment properties, saw us representing ourselves. And then that kind of tied into me getting into the sales aspect because I now learned what the business was. Where before I, I was, I had, I don't know if they call it rose-colored goggles or whatever the term is, um, but I was looking from the outside in and I didn't really understand 
the whole real estate market and what what exactly it was. So when I saw the business opportunity, I decided to go, you know, full fledged towards it. So when you left the force, what made you actually say, you know what, today's the day. I, I'm closing that chapter. I'm opening the chapter in real estate. And how hard was that decision? Because I feel like that in itself is one of the reasons why people don't ever get off the fence, right? They think that they have to go full bar into real estate when maybe you can just tiptoe initially like you did in, you know, buy a property, learn how to, you know, manage it, learn how to renovate it or whatever it is. And then, you know, you can go further as you get down the road. But at some point you had a commitment to, I'm no longer going to be a part of the force and I'm going to go into this real estate game full time. So what was that dynamic and how did that change actually come about? So early on, I, I knew that I, it's not that I didn't want to do law enforcement. I enjoyed being a police officer. I enjoyed serving people and helping people at a high level. Um, I just knew that in order to make the transition and provide for my family to the level that I wanted to provide for them and, and give the opportunities that I wanted to do, that it was going to take a little bit more than what I was bringing in currently. So I, and I, I didn't have a grand master plan. I just knew that I had to keep doing more every day than I did the day before. So every single day I would engage in looking for more properties. And I got to the point that I became quote unquote financially free, you know, where our passive income started to cover some of our base expenses. You know, we're not going to Hawaii every night, but you know, our <laughs> mortgage was paid, you know, our car notes were paid. We had a little bit of money saved up from what we were generating on our passive income. Um, at that point, that started opening my eyes on the possibilities. I don't know if I was there yet because I still worked almost two years after that as a police officer, but it at least opened up our eyes to say, okay, this may be an option if we just keep doing what we're doing. So, I mean, so many people try to overcomplicate this and try to make it fancy and then try to buy deals that don't make sense. Ultimately, one of the things I did was just, we just stood with what made sense. We buy right and then we make sure that we manage the best we can. Um, those two equations combined allowed me to make the transition. And then following through with real estate, as far as the sales aspects go, I didn't make the transition, I want to say, until 2018. And it came at a time where my youngest was born. Uh, when he was born, um, because I was a government employee and an employee under W-2, I was entitled to FMLA. So when he was born, I took the three months off that I was entitled to. Uh, and uh, I was just like, God, give me a sign. Let's see what happens. Uh, because even though, you know, I was making good money as a law enforcement officer, I was making really good money at the time in real estate. I still felt like I needed that paycheck. I, I mean, it was, I don't want to say insignificant, but it was a fraction of what we were bringing in at the time. And I just kept going back and forth. And I'm like, I need it. I need it. And I was like, all right, the baby's going to be born. This is the first time I'll have an opportunity to spend time with him, you know, on my schedule, on my terms. I took the three months off and I was like, and during this time, I'll get a sign. And that following month, I think I made more that month than I did the previous year as a law enforcement officer. Oh, and wow. To me, you know, and that was the sign. That was God sure. saying, listen, double down on yourself and, you know, keep moving forward. Okay. So tell me what you invest in. What did you originally start buying and what are you investing in today? And has that changed over the years? It honestly hasn't changed. I kept it simple. Um, and I kept it simple because there's a lot of heavy capital going into our market. There's a lot of people that are buying, you know, and compressing what we can actually buy for because they have, you know, whether it's hedge fund or big money going into it that, you know, a small time investor like me, can't, I can't really compete. I mean, they're, they're making money on basis points and they're making money on spreads, you know, where I need to make the cash flow. I can't sure. wait on speculation. So I just buy single family, you know, typically one to five, one to six unit um, complexes that I can do a value at. I buy them renovate the entire property as best we can within the budget 
and then we turn it and rent it. Um, so we keep it simple. We have relationships with a couple of local banks that allow us to kind of keep turning our money as fast as possible. I would say the biggest thing that has been our success is the efficiency of us being able to get the projects done because we don't make our money while it's sitting there, you know, on the renovations. We don't make the money while it's sitting there empty. You know, we want to take our capital and continue to turn it over and over again. How did you build your team that is doing the renovations? Because I'm sure you're not necessarily in there swinging every hammer, pounding every nail. <laughs> I, I was. Honestly, in the beginning, the first five or six projects, I did a uh, majority of it myself. Oh, wow. I, I did not know anything. I, all I knew is that I had a credit card that I could max out and I had a house <laughs> that I owned. And I was like, okay, let's go. Let's go to town. Okay. I'd pick up you know, shopping carts of Lowe's at nine o'clock at night. They'd be pushing me out the store. Like, hey, we got to close up. And they literally close the gate behind me and I'll have five shopping carts in the parking lot, making runs to the house and dropping it off at midnight. Okay. Uh, so did you have I, other people helping you then or were you solely doing? I was doing, I mean, I, I would call out stuff that I couldn't do myself, like, you know, service panels and things that are beyond that. But, you know, swapping out some outlets and, you know, painting and some drywall, some flooring, trim, windows, things that I could do or I could kind of teach myself. I managed to navigate. Um, twofold. One, because I didn't have the resources to get it done. And two, because I wanted to know what I didn't know. You sure. know I, I wanted to make sure that I understood and I can talk the talk when I'm dealing with contractors and other investors and people the like. So how did you, you know, coming from a, a different background, obviously, I don't think that all this was like second nature to you. So how did you, how did you learn how to do some of the stuff in the house? Was it, was it YouTube? Later on with YouTube University, uh, early on was just buying the books. I mean, there's so many different books okay. you can get online that I would Amazon and have them sent to me that allowed me to just read the code book and understand, you know, the way certain frames needs to be needs to be done, the way doors need to be done, the way, it, you know, to maintain things plumb and squared and, you know, get things the way they need to, you know, glue and screw and drywall. Right. You know, that was a thing that, you know, most people didn't even do. I do it on all my properties, you know, and it maintains integrity and proves certain things. Right. And these are things that I would just find. On top of that, you know, I would call a friend, find a contractor, find a car carpenter. And if I couldn't afford to hire them, I at least pay them to pick their brain. Okay, good enough. So do you still do the renovations on the properties that you buy now? We do. Uh, I personally don't. Um, I stopped that about, probably about, eh, I, I lie because every once in a while I'll toss the kitchen in if we're short on staff. Um, but for the most part, uh, we try to just outsource a lot of that. Um, we have a network of subs that, subcontractors that we utilize, and we have one or two typically employees in-house that kind of help us manage what we're doing um, because we constantly always have between two to probably five projects going at any given time. Okay. So tell me uh, a little bit about the people that you have in-house. What What is their role in this whole game? So I have one gentleman by the name of Mason who's kind of, I want to say he's my GC, he bounces from project to project. And then I have, you know, another uh, employee who kind of helps with our rental churns. So uh, I used to try to outsource everything. At one point, I built a massive team up. And for me, it, I, I didn't have that many units that I needed to have 20 employees. Um, through a number of conversations and networks, I've kind of come to the equation um, that typically one employee can handle probably 40 to 50 units as they're churning them without the flips and things of that nature. So we ended up just... Mason ends up being my GC. He's like my right-hand guy when it comes to our properties and he bounces around. He makes sure the material gets on site because that's one of the things that we found to save some money is that we get good deals on material. We make sure we source out, we make sure we put the best stuff that we can put in by our budget and not just buying the bottom of the barrel that we have to swap out four or five times. You know, when we do our rehabs, we try to make sure that we replace certain things that we know are going to be problematic in the future. You know, if we have a property that's vacant and we're pulling permits anyway, why not just replace a PEX downstairs? I mean, a run of PEX is relatively in inexpensive. 
So we're not dealing with some of the older properties. I mean, in Pennsylvania, we deal with a lot of old inventory. We deal a lot of cast iron, a lot of terracotta pipes. And you know, if we're there doing the work and we can access it, we definitely try to swap it out from the beginning to avoid recurring calls for no reason. Okay. Are you self-managing everything that you uh, own now? We are. Okay. And do you have a team of people that help you with that? Or is it just the same employees that we're talking about? It's just the two same employees for now. I mean, we don't have, I mean, we have a little over 50 units right now that we maintain. Um, over the years, we probably bought and sold probably about 130, maybe 140. Okay. How many of your deals in the past were flips versus buy and hold? Uh, the, I would say out of the 150 we've probably done, I would say 40 of them may have been intentional flips. Okay. Um, some of them were opportunistically as we turned them, the market, you know, provided some resources to take or they were areas that we just didn't want to cluster ourselves. So our our portfolio is pretty much within 45 minutes of the Lehigh Valley. Okay. And there were some that were outlying properties that we kind of picked up little by little. And we just decided just to cluster a little bit better. So we have a bunch in the center city Island town. We have a bunch in Sladington. We have a bunch of Penarjul. We have a bunch of Bethlehem. So at one point we had a couple outliers that were just bouncing all over. So we kind of sold some of those opportunistically just to keep the cluster. So when we were doing our quarterly inspection reports, you can drive in there, do a cluster and kind of make it and make it as efficient as possible. Okay. Fair enough. So you'd mentioned that you are using subs for a lot of the renovations and you've got your GC guy kind of monitoring that. How important was the the building of those relationships? Because it sounds like you're using the same group of people over and over again. So how how hard was it to build that relationship and, and how important was it to build those relationships? It was extremely it was extremely difficult, but also extremely fruitful. Um, the difficult part was, you know, there's contractors that will try to burn you. There's contractors that are going to try to get, you know, a quick buck and get out. And not that it's some people, maybe the intention, I don't want to believe that that was, that was their intention, but other people have motives and things that occur in their life that, you know, cause them to do certain things. I will tell you the relationships that we had, you know, I would just, you know, call a friend of a friend. Typically the people that operate in trades, they have friends, they have cousins, they have, you know, family members that are within the trades. And I would just kind of go down that, you know, that aisle and just keep asking for a referral if they know someone. Um, like my roofer that I have, he's a great roofer, he's based out of Easton. And I found them through the guy that was doing my gutters one day. And I've been using him for almost four years now. Um, so I was like, hey, who do you know that does, you know, roofing? And even if I don't need them at that time, I'll get two or three names. And then next time I go to do a bid, ask them how they do the process, invite them out to the project. Or even if I'm in a project, I'd invite two or three people and say, hey, would you mind giving me a price quickly? Um, I'll buy you lunch. I'll get you coffee. Just get them in, in there so we can meet face, shake hands. And, you know, I, I believe wholeheartedly this is still a belly-to-belly business that you have to get, you know, in front of people and be able to engage with them. Sure. And those same subs are now are still working for you? A lot of them are? The majority of the, yeah. Okay. Uh, every once in a while, you have one or two that'll, that'll kind of peel off because, you know, they either decide they want to go, you know, traditional commercial route or they want to do more consumer facing, not investor facing. Because as you know, I mean, we're a different animal. Right. Uh, we can't pay what consumers can pay on certain things. I mean, we try to pay the best we can, but we have our own margins and balances that we have to make. So was there anything else besides the actual referral from other people that are references that you use to find and locate contractors or tradesmen in the past? I mean, real early on, I used to go to a lot of uh, network meetups. So I mean, okay. I've seen a bunch of them as well. I would go to different contractors and different investor meetups because you'll have investors there, you have wholesalers, you have contractors that'll show up to some of these meetings. And it's a great mix and mingle to get in front of people. It's consolidated, you know, when I had the time and the availability. 
because you can go there, you're meeting other like-minded people and typically contractors that are investor geared, but they understand some of the compression on costs and some of the time sensitive nature of it because of what, how we're trying to turn everything. So, I mean, the, the meetups would be huge um, when they're targeted correctly. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about current market trends and what you're seeing now. So what would you say are the current trends in the real estate market today as, as they relate to investments, uh, specifically in the Lehigh Valley? It's horrific. Um, no. <laughs> um, overall, I, I mean, the market has definitely changed significantly, but I think the market has always changed and it's always going to continue to change. Um, if I can make a side note, one of the things I would caution people because I see it a lot online is um, I saw a post yesterday, actually. Somebody, somebody made the quote that if you pay cash, everything will cash flow, which to me is just mind-boggling um, as an investor. Um, <laughs> it, it's just, and, and, But these are the gurus that people are looking up to. I mean, this person probably has, I think she has 100,000 followers. So quite, quite a following. But her comment was that, I, I mean, I, and I get that as an investors, you know, yes, is there some truth in that language? Absolutely. But what about cash and cash return? What about debt service? What about the leverage capabilities? And we can go on for days about this. I'm not a tax advisor, so I can't give all the information about that. Um, but there's so many potential and benefits to leveraging correctly and utilizing that. That if so, I don't know if everybody has a million dollars in their cash account right now to go buy one property. Sure. And lose the potential on why we invest in real estate and the benefits we get out of it. Yeah. Uh, but going back to the market, I mean, the market is still... It's still very strong. I mean, I think we've always had a very strong market because of the healthcare and the infrastructure we have. And we have great workforce housing. We have great um, manufacturing jobs. I mean, this is the reason why we thrived even during COVID. I mean, I think we're an isolated pocket with everything we have. And that's why we have attracted so many investors from outside of the market. Um, so I don't see that change anytime soon. Do I think the rates are making it tougher to make deals work on your spreadsheet? Absolutely. Um, but I still think it's a market that's going to continue to thrive. Okay. How would you say the recent economic changes have shifted the way that you should look at your investments or, or has it, has it shifted the way that you look at your investments that you're looking to buy? It hasn't shifted mine because I always focus on how I acquire it. I think it's going to shift a lot of people's lenses on it because I think a lot of people were, were making foolish investments. Um, to an extent, because they were like, oh, the market's going to continue to go up. It's always going to go up. And it is always going to go up until that certain point. So I think some, many people were saved by the market. I mean, I'll be honest, I was foolish at one point too. when I, was, I bought a property almost sight unseen that I didn't pay attention to. And it was supposed to be a flip. I did some quick preliminary searches online. Everything came out to be perfect. They said it was a single family ranch in Salisbury Township. Turns out it was a double wide trailer that was never deeded correctly. And I bought this at auction. Oh. Yeah. Um, oh my so, God. You know, when the market's real frothy, I think some people make silly mistakes like that. They don't pay attention. Um, fortunately, the market did save me. I was able to break even on it. I think I lost like five grand on it in the grand scheme of it. But I leveled the house and built a new construction in place. So okay. by being able to do that, you know, if it wasn't such a good market, I probably would have lost my, lost it all on that. You know, I could have lost a yeah. considerable amount of resources into that project. So I, I think the, the current trend that where we're heading now is going to cause people to kind of clean their lenses up and pay attention to what we really should be focusing on and not just buy to buy because 8% will change the way your property performs. Sure. So, you know, I think that one of the things that prevents people from investing ever 
and being able to realize a life of financial freedom is fear, fear of failing. But yet every person I think I've ever talked to that is successful in real estate now has failed somewhere and has learned from that. How much do you think your experiences, your success and your failures have shaped the way that you do things today? I think it, I mean, immensely, I I realize that all the failures, I mean, to equate the one I just spoke about, um, I won't ever buy a property without going to see it again. Um, at one point I was getting foolish and I was just buying to buy, to keep the guys busy. Um, so I I will say that, you know, your, your failures are going to be your biggest attribute in my opinion. Um, whether it's personal ones or, you know, even if you take to account, you know, your personal finances, if you realize you have no money in the bank and you could connect the dots backwards, you can realize why that occurred. You know, you can always connect the dots backwards. You know, you can always look at your failures and say, this is why this happened. But it's the analyzed and the taking the time to look at why it occurred to realize what the key, you know, what the key shift is going to be and what the key part of that that allows you not to make that again. Now, having that failure two and three and four times because you're making the same things, that's borderline the definition of insanity. Right. And you'll be sure. doing the same thing over, over again, trying to get a different result. But I think those things will be huge to allow you to make the shift to, you know, get into where you want to get to. I think none of us in this room or none of us that are going to be listening to this are people that haven't failed. I think we've all failed. I think we've all realized, okay, this doesn't work. And that's why we pivot and shift. Sure. I definitely agree. The episode will continue in just a moment. As an investor, we know it's important to stay on top of market trends and real estate opportunities that add value to your portfolio. We also know that having a trusted source of reliable information to help you stay a step ahead of other investors is critical to your success. If you're interested in having these types of resources, as well as access to me and my team, I invite you to join the Empire Investment Club, a free service that gives you an easier way to make sense of today's and tomorrow's real estate opportunities. As a member of the Empire Investment Club, you'll get access to relevant resources and investment-focused experiences such as live interactive webinars, market trend presentations, and investor socials designed to equip you with what you need to succeed. So whether you're an active investor, passive investor, a combination of both, or just starting out, the club is where you'll get what you need to build a portfolio you love. To join, just head over to jenniferdehesus.com, sign up, and we'll see you in the club where everyone's on a journey to becoming a better investor. How would you say technology has helped or hindered your ability to invest and invest smartly? Well, technology has been paramount. I mean, early on when I started this in 2013, 14, I mean, I think podcast was about the only thing that was out there. YouTube was just starting out. Uh, Now, I mean, honestly, as I'm speaking to you right now, I'm, I'm in my house in Florida. So I'm bouncing between locations between Pennsylvania and Florida. And this gives me the ability to engage in conversations like this, still have some networking meetups with local investors. It also gives me the ability to, when my maintenance crews out there checking out properties, you know, I send them with a Matterport, they Matterport a property. I can analyze and kind of build the scope off of Matterport. If I'm in Pennsylvania or if I'm in Florida or if I'm in Pennsylvania, looking at a Florida job, I have a Matterport down here as well. So the ability to be able to be kind of present and kind of 3D with almost any transaction allows us to talk to people as if we were there with them, view properties as if we were there with them. I mean, I can take measurements with the Matterport. Now, obviously, I won't take trim out and, you know, I won't do a full pick order off, off a Matterport, but I can get a good idea of, you know, what I'm working with. So I think the technology has been, I mean, I can't imagine doing this back in the day where we had to go and 
get keys from properties, you know, from the MLS back in the day and where, you know, you didn't have the ability of getting pictures, you know, high quality pictures within a moment's notice. And that's just the base level. I mean, we're talking about the ability to do contracts and sign documents in just a matter of moments. I mean, think about that. I mean, we literally, with the click of a button, you could probably send me a contract for a property and I could have it fully executed into my title office within 10 minutes. Right. Yeah, it definitely has shifted, shifted for sure. So for people that don't, I, I obviously know what Matterport is, but for people that don't know what Matterport is, what are you talking about? So Matterport is a 128 pixel camera and it has like six different lenses on it that allows you to scan a room entirely to include LiDAR. And LiDAR is a, uh, it's a metric that allows the camera to be able to, with a relatively tight level of precision, scan and be able to say, okay, this wall, how big is it? All right, this wall's 13 feet by 15 feet. You can create 3D renders. You can create a blueprint off the property to see, you know, what it looks like. So this allows me to essentially get a high-level view of the project we're working on and what we're going to do and build a scope of work out and build my entire, you know, workflow off this. And I can transpose what I want done in each one of the rooms inside each one of the rooms. So it makes a, I can paint a really clear, concise picture for the contractors and the team moving forward. Very cool. How long have you been you've been using that technology? I bought it probably about five years ago. I bought it uh, probably about four years ago. I bought it for the real estate sales side, and mm-hmm. then found the dual benefit of being able to trend, use it and have. So one of the other re- ways I use it is for my rentals. So I have an archive of all my properties. If I ever had to evict somebody, I can go to court and show the judge exactly what the property looked like, and he can walk through with a date, you know, with everything on it. If there's ever a question that this was here or this wasn't there, I have a full archive of all my properties. Year after year, as they, every time we turn them, I go and do another archive on them. Awesome. That's uh, a very unique way to use uh, technology. That's awesome. So what advice would you give investors looking to enter the market today? Don't make it fancy. Don't make it too complicated. Um, and buy within your buy within your comfort zone. Um, I, too often I see people trying to go crazy and I see all this multifamily, this multi. And don't get me wrong, multifamily is great. But everyone can't afford to go buy a 15 unit or a 50 unit. And everyone doesn't understand the compl- the complexities and the intricacies of syndications and funding together. Um, take baby steps. You, it doesn't have to be, you know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You know, nothing you're going to do tomorrow is going to make you a multi-billionaire and you're going to retire unless you're Jeff Bezos or something of that sort and <laughs> find a way to do it. Um, but most of us that are in this space, you know, we, we need base hits. Everyone wants to tout and everyone wants to make it seem like, you know, you need a home run right off the first, you know, the first hit. And it's not necessary. Uh, you know, I'm living proof that, you know, just one after another, just get up every day and focus on what you want to focus on, understand what your buy box is. And when I refer to buy box for those that don't know is, you know, what you're comfortable buying, what your criteria is, and just have it on one spreadsheet, you know, have, have one sheet that just says, okay, I'm comfortable on this. I'm comfortable on buying single family houses within this area that'll rent for about this because it allows you to either add things to your potential property or remove them very, very quickly. Whereas, you know, it beca- it can become overwhelming when you're looking at 100 properties that pop up on the MLS or 100 sure. properties that have come up. But if you know, okay, I only want to buy in Catasauqua, for example, that's your criteria. Or if you take it one step further back and say, I know that I, I can only afford, based on my numbers, to buy homes that are under 180. So now you could remove all the additional stuff above 180. Or, you know, if you know that you can only afford, based on your cash available, 100,000. You could kind of break your criteria on that and just taking the baby steps and taking the small strides. Okay. 
for investors slash sellers that are looking to sell something in this current market, what would you tell them? What would be your best advice? Give me and Jennifer a call. I'm just <laughs> no. I like it. I like it. <laughs> um, I would say the biggest thing I would say is to make sure that you know you're maximizing your value for your property by presenting as best as you can. I mean, there's minimal things that you could do. I mean, there's still buyers out there. There's still people that have to because of 1031s, which are like-kinded exchanges or other reasons that have to transact. I think the transactions will change. Um, I will also say, don't be unreasonable because the market has shifted. I mean, cost of money has changed the way we can buy things significantly for those that are using leverage and not that misnomer that somebody spoke about. I, I, I'm sorry, that term that she said drives me crazy um, about <laughs> using cash, anything on cash flow. Yeah. Um, but keeping realistic expectations, um, I think the frothy market of two, three, four, five percent, it's gone to an extent. And I think that will. I think that'll change significantly. I mean, you put that in your spreadsheet and adjust for it. I mean, you're talking about some things are getting hundred thousand dollars slashes just because it doesn't perform. Right. If the bank don't lend on it. Like I said, there's not many people that have millions and millions of dollars in their pocket ready to just buy all out cash. Mm-hmm. Would it also be fair to say that if you're going to sell, you probably should do it now? One hundred percent. I mean, I, I don't see it getting any better. Um, I would say that making the doing the transaction as you know as soon as possible is going to make sense because there are still people that have to transact because of decisions they made before you know whether they were two year three year five year arms there are people that were in hard money positions that have to transact because they have to transfer the funds over so i I would say you know giving a call right away to one of you know to jennifer or my and we'll take we'll get you taken care of now yeah absolutely i actually was just having a conversation with a colleague slash client of mine and we were talking about, you know, a few years ago when the market was so hot and people were buying up stuff left and right because it wasn't artificially inflated yet and the cost of money was drastically low. You know, all these people bought, you know, com- you know, were using commercial loans and doing five-year arms, right? Well, guess what's happening in the next year? They're all resetting, right? So there's going to be inventory. It's going to come back because some people are going to be forced out of their properties, right? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't make sense for whatever reason today. And then some will just refinance or something like that and things will be good. Um, but, But there's going to be an adjustment and it's going to come full circle because, you know, that was several years ago. So within the next year or two, I suspect that we see a lot more inventory. Oh, 100%. I mean, my wife and I are currently doing that now. We're going through our entire spreadsheet. And I was like, hey, I want highlighted in red all of our um, all of our rate locks. You know, fortunately, most of ours, we were able to lock in seven or 10 years at the time they were offering it. Yeah. So we have a couple more years um, before that comes due. But I want that on my radar. You know, yeah, we have for sure. Now, but I mean, because that changes your cash flow drastically. Sure. I mean, some of these are going from 399 to, you know, 7.9 or 7, 8.5. That'll wipe out quite a bit of your cash flow. And that goes back to our initial statement of, you know, make sure you buy right. Don't 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 just buy to buy. Right. Because it should cash flow. I mean, there's so many people that will tell you buy for appreciation. I, I'm not a speculative investor. I'm not a fan of that. Um, there's a lot of people that, you know, buy in speculation. It can go south real quick. I mean, and yes, that there are failures that you want to learn from. That's not one that I want to learn from. Sure. I think, uh, you know, looking at your adjustable rate mortgages now before you're in the year that they actually adjust, I think is a really smart and critical function because, you know, rates are going to drop. It's only a matter of time. And they might just get over the next couple of months into the year, they might get low enough where it makes sense to refinance prematurely. 
you know, versus waiting till now you're forced to make a decision because now maybe your decision is now I've got to sell the property. And then you've got to think of capital gains and things like that. So I think that your advice on looking at things and, you know, from a holistic perspective and, and knowing what is coming down the pipeline for all of your investments is is a great tool. It's not just about tunnel vision. I've got cash flow and everything's great because tomorrow things could change if you're not looking at all the factors. So I think that's wonderful. A lot of that comes back from my background in law enforcement. And we, I mean, in law enforcement, we always play the what if scenario. Sure. You know, every situation we went into was always, okay, what if the lady comes out with a gun? What if, you know, you're arresting the husband from a domestic or the wife from a domestic and then the husband of the a significant spouse gets pissed off and they, I've had that happen. You know, I'm arresting one person that just got into an altercation with the spouse and as I'm bringing them outside, the other spouse gets pissed off because they're in handcuffs and now they're attacking me. Um, so it's, you know, playing the what if puts you in a position that you at least can be proactive and you can be offensive versus being reactive. I mean, the last thing you want to do is get caught by not paying attention. And then now you're stuck there having to do what we spoke about. You know, having to, you know, fire yourself a property because you can't make cash flow and you don't have the funds and the resources saved up. Sure. So what do you predict in the real estate market as well as the financial markets over the next, say, six months, a year, two years, three years? What do you, what do you think is going to happen? I think it's going to get slow. I think a lot of people that are typically... That sh I don't want to say the word shouldn't be in this industry because I think everyone should have been in this industry that wants to be in it. But I think the people that just got it thinking they were going to make a quick buck are going to go you know, south and go away. I think there's going to be a lot of transactions still transacting. I mean, transactions have to occur. People have to sell properties, whether it's a distress sale, fire sale. I, I think the people that are doing the work are going to, are going to see the, the fruits of that. Um, I don't think that's going to change at all. I think you have to make sure you buy correctly. Um, uh, but I do, you know, I follow a lot of the same trends that are saying, you know, Q3, Q4, 2025 is when we're going to see rates get better. Um, I think if it makes sense to buy, still buy. I mean, if you can, if your property can perform on today's numbers, they're going to perform even better in Q3 or Q4, 2025 numbers. Um, when you can adjust your interest rates, don't lock yourself into prepayment penalty if possible, knowing that you can adjust that. So I, I think navigating with kind of those lenses will put you in a good position. Okay. Do you still think today that real estate is still the most stable type of investment in comparison to like stocks, bonds, crypto, all the different types of things that you can get in? Do you think real estate still has that that metric of sustainability? And of course, I mean, is there is there a one thousand percent or somewhere that can like triple like this? Um, <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because there is you know real estate is the one place that you get paid four times. You know, sure. you're going to get paid by your appreciation of the asset, and let's take out the the madness that occurred when we were gaining 20, 30% per year. Let's just talk about two to 3% per year. I mean, you're, you're controlling an asset on a leverage basis that allows you to get two to 3% on it. So even if you had 20% into the property, but you're getting 2% on the entire value of the property. I mean, I don't have a spreadsheet in front of me. I'm not that good with math, but I mean, those numbers are significant for what you're going to get on your you know rate of return on just that one component. Sure. You have the debt pay down that the tenant's going to help you pay down. You have the cash flow, which you're generating income, which if leveraged correctly, and I'm not a tax advisor, but much of that becomes you know tax-free because of the depreciation. Um, so between those four components, between the debt paid on the appreciation, the cash flow basis, I mean, it's you're winning on every avenue that I and I'm not big into stocks, so I can't compare apples to apples. But I can tell you that you know I haven't seen or have had anyone mention uh, an investment that can perform on those levels. Not without a, a whole lot of risk. 
Yeah. And a whole lot of money invested. I, I think that's the other unique thing about real estate is that, you know, sometimes you could just get in for much lower cost of entry than I think in a lot of other areas of, of investing, right? Um, 100%. You know, but again, it has to be done right, right? That's any investment. It's just got to be done right. Yeah. And I, I think that's the key thing. So many people get lost because it's the word investment. So many people see this and they, they, they reach out to me and I'm sure they reach out to you and they're like, okay, well, I want to invest and I have this much money. When am I going to be rich? I'm like, it's not <laughs> happening overnight. I mean, you, just because you own a property doesn't make you an investor. Just because you sold one property, you're not an investor. It's understanding how to navigate the ups and the downs, understanding how to make the acquisitions and the dispositions when necessary, understanding how to find the value add in the properties, understanding, you know, those are the investment components and the criteria and knowing how to identify that is, is super, super, um, when it comes to the projects. Sure. So how do you foresee the real estate industry, the real estate market evolving in the coming years and what should real estate professionals be prepared for or what should clients be prepared for investors be prepared for? I think technology is going to continue to get in our way. Um, I, I, but I think we can't just turn the blind. I think we have to realize that technology is going to be there to stay. I mean, if, if, Going back to my statement earlier, I mean, in 2000, and I was an agent there, but Tim Heimbach, one of the agents that our market has been around quite a while, um, and I've had stories with him and we've engaged in, he's done nothing but consistent actions since like day one. I think everybody loves Tim, but at the same time, Tim also remembers back in the day, we used to have to drive across town to get a key to show a property. Yeah. Um, that's, but now you literally, with the click of an app, you get the access code, you enter the property, Typically, never even put the key sometimes because there's Wi-Fi hookups. You get into the property, show the property, and leave. Um, so technology has evolved. I mean, even the scheduling component. We don't even have to call sellers anymore because we schedule online. If we take a second and connect those dots backwards and how technology has helped us get to here now, I don't know if technology is always going to be a bad thing. Right. I think I think it's going to adjust some of the ways we operate, but I think we have to learn to navigate it. I mean, think about it. And I don't know how long you've been doing this, Jennifer, uh, but... I can't imagine a day where I had to drive to somebody's house to go sign a contract. You know, everything's done digitally. I mean, we have a couple of clients that don't work on computers, so we, we still do it. But overall, I mean, look how technology has helped us with that. I mean, a click of a button, somebody's signing their house away. Sure. Yeah, I uh, 15 years, that's how long I've been in the business. So I do remember driving across town to get keys. And I do remember hand signing contracts. So technology has certainly expedited the amount of deals and uh, amount of, uh, you know, investments that you can find in, you know, a couple of clicks of the button. But you did say something really, really critical earlier, or at least alluded to it. And it's, you got to be careful what you find. So because technology is so easy and it is at everybody's fingertips, there's also a lot of people that talk about things that they don't actually have any experience in, right? Just because they talk and because they got a platform to do so. So you've got to be very careful, very cautious that the people that you're listening to that are advising you actually are in a place that you want to be. And if not, you shouldn't be taking their advice. 100%. I mean, you have to, you want to learn from somebody who's in the trenches. I mean, it's it's like going to see a skinny chef, and I, I know that's an old quote, but back in the day, <laughs> but legitimately, if he's not eating his food and knowing what he's doing, I mean, it it's so tough. And I, I know that has changed a lot because there's a lot of chefs that are phenomenal that you know have six packs. Right. Um, but nonetheless, I I mean, that's you have to make sure that the person is in there doing it. And don't get me wrong, there are people that 
have done it and have stopped doing it for one reason or, for, or another. Um, but the ability to understand that they're looking and not just because not that they did it 20 years ago, because everything was different 20 years ago. You have to speak to somebody who's in the trenches now who are analyzing deals. Sure. And I know many times we feel like we can't talk to those people because they're competition. But I will tell you, most people, and I'm sure my, Jennifer will agree, if it ever comes a day that Jennifer and I are across the table and we're bidding for the same house, may the best person win. Right. Um, sure. Up until, up until then, I think we achieve more by working together and sharing ideas and ways to navigate this because I don't know anyone that's smart enough to navigate this entire industry themselves. Right. I right. think the combination of us working together will make each one of us better. And like I said, if there ever comes a day that Jennifer and I are across the table and we're going to get the seller for the, may the first person win. Yeah, for sure. So what is your best advice for investors that have not made the move yet to start investing? Take a second, analyze what the, what's the worst case scenario. And that's what I tell everyone. Provided that you have a good advocate, such as Jennifer or myself, or somebody that can guide you through this process, what is the worst case scenario that can happen? If you're comfortable with the worst case scenario, go for it. There's nothing that you can lose at that point. You know, and this goes back to my law enforcement scenario. I prepared, for, unfortunately, for active shooter drills. I prepared for, you know, potentially being outgunned or outnumbered in a situation. And I knew what my outs were. If you take that same approach and take that same lens in and look at a scenario where, all right, if I buy this property, I know I'm buying it for 125000 or whatever the number is, and I put X amount into it, but let's say everything goes wrong and I have to double my budget. Will I be bankrupt? Will I be broke? Will I be able to sell the property? Even if I had to sell the property, what's my potential loss? If you can analyze that and you're comfortable with everything there, what do you have to lose? All you have to lose is the opportunity for your life to be changed. Because if it, that's the worst case scenario, imagine if everything went great. Imagine if you bought the property, it turns key as cash flowing, and now you're moving forward. Now you just have to put yourself in position to buy the next property and the next property. And I'm sure Jennifer can attest to us that once you start making that momentum, it becomes a snowball effect. Sure. Because instead of you taking your money from your you know active income, that passive income starts providing the down payment, the resources to buy the next property. Sure. And then it just becomes something that either you grow to wherever you want it to grow. Everybody doesn't have to want 50, 80, 100, 2,000 units. You could be happy with just five that'll provide a lifestyle or a legacy or even, you know, just pay for your college kids in the future when they go to, you know, you can keep it early on, ride it for 15 years, 17 years when the kids go to college, pay off the property, sell it, and then use those funds to pay off their college debt. You know, everyone's goal is going to be a little bit different there. Sure. Well, Justino, that was amazing advice. I really appreciate the time that you took to talk to me today and answer some questions and give some insight on your experiences and things that have worked and not worked for you and help us guide investors and provide education that will be beneficial for them. So thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you for the opportunity. I, I'm really, I was proud when, and uh, humbled when you uh, sent the invite. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode with my special guest, Justino Arroyo. I hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time, take care. For more information about how Jennifer can help you plan, develop, and manage a strong real estate investment portfolio, visit growingempires.com.